0: And thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 148. It's the quiet ones you have to watch. How do you make a zombie look even scarier? You put it in an SS or Schutzstaffel uniform. A bad joke, true, but still accurate. Of all of Hitler's Germany, the SS or Protection Squad still holds the paramount place in striking fear back then or fascination today, due to its very atrocities. But the SS under Heinrich Himmler became so much more than a terror squad. Starting out as a bodyguard for Hitler well before the war came, the organization under Himmler would go on to administer the concentration camps, the intelligence agencies, Germany's police, and, as time went on, more of the Reich's economic adventures. Indeed, the time would come, certainly when working with Germany's smokestack barons, that money would supersede ideology or race, which was an incredible shift, as the SS embodied Nazi ideology so much more than the regular army. But more than all these entities, and probably because of them, the SS formed its own military, the Waffen-SS. For Himmler recognized to have money and influence but no power meant that those very advantages would become targets for other parts of the Third Reich. And Hitler had set up his government, nay his empire, to have many competing, even cutthroat branches that would keep each other in check and away from his throat. But getting back to the Waffen-SS It would make its mark on Hitler's war with the world, most times fighting proudly and savagely, as a force should, but still taking the time for illegal acts against civilians and prisoners, not just enemy combatants. But for a moment, imagine a multi-armed organization that will one day rise to great heights in strength, pride, and riches, yet be torn apart by Hitler's ideas of what it should be versus Himmler's idea of what it should be, and lastly, and perhaps most importantly, by the eccentricities of war, as the tide turned against all that the SS stood for. Before Nazi Germany actively threatened the world, and was itself threatened, Himmler could afford to be very selective of the men he let in to the Waffen-SS, Just having the right Aryan background, as well as being able to fulfill the demands of a soldier, was only the beginning. One had to have the right attitude about Germany's place in the world. But that would change with the ever-widening and successful military campaigns. In time, non-Germans would be allowed in, which did not bother Himmler as much as it did Hitler. The Fuhrer only wanted Germans proper, from Germany. Whereas Himmler looked about and seen the Germanic peoples of Northern and Western Europe cast a wider net. These people outside of Germany would fight, create, and protect the greater Germany. But even beyond that, Himmler had plans for his Waffen SS. Yet, that was for later. As for why Hitler tolerated Himmler, taking his beloved protection squad in a different direction, that simply came down to the string of victories achieved by the Waffen-SS Panzer Divisions. Success almost always wins out. But what should never be forgotten as we delve into the history of the Waffen-SS on the battlefield was that the regular army, the Wehrmacht, was also guilty of atrocities. There was no good German army that was professional and obsessed with honor. Like all armies throughout history, some of these men, far from home, thinking they could die at any moment and being constantly told that their rivals were, somehow, a little less human, did unspeakable things, as did the Allies in Italy and to the north. The difference, of course, was that the Allied soldiers were punished when caught. The Nazi elite encouraged their men. The distinction is important. And it must never be forgotten that the SS as a whole was trying to achieve a political victory over Germany as much as over Europe. Der Fuhrer couldn't live forever. Such was the world that Hitler created. The unassuming Heinrich Himmler who dreamed probably bigger than his leader, was born on October 7, 1900. But, unlike Dr. Marcel Petio's parents' divorce or his mother's early death, there does not seem to be an unfortunate event that caused or triggered the monster he would become. It was probably there all the time. Himmler gleefully signed up for the army, In 1917, but by the time he was finished officer training, the war was over. This would bother him that he was not able to fight for his country, probably more than it should. His middle-class Bavarian parents pushed him into agriculture, a time-honored profession, and being the dutiful son, he studied the subject at the University of Munich. But still, his manhood ached for military glory. Yet by 1918, as Germany had been humbled by Versailles, the best he could do was search out paramilitary groups. In 1922, Himmler met Ernst Rahm, who had fought in the war, and the latter convinced the former to join the Nazi Party the following year, 1923. Two years later, Himmler was allowed to join the SS. The organization itself had just been started, right after Hitler got out of jail for his failed putsch. Himmler, it seems, was getting in on the ground floor of this new adventure. By 1927, his obsession with pleasing Hitler and his enthusiasm landed him the SS deputy leader position, which should have only meant that he was now a glorified bodyguard as the SS was under the SA storm section, the brown shirts run by Rahm himself. But the SS would become so much more because Himmler was so much more than he seemed at first glance. The dedication and hard work were easy to notice. It was the scheming behind the eyes that everyone should have been looking out for. As Hitler's reputation grew... In the late 1920s, by his side, beating his political rivals, literally, in the streets, was the SA. But having built up the SS, Himmler was now ready to make his first move. Talking with Hitler in 1930, the leader agreed to give the SS more latitude, coming out from under the SA's shadow. This independence was quickly repaid when the SS backed Hitler during a brief internal struggle between the Nazi party as a whole versus the SA's local Berlin branch. Hitler praised the SS and Himmler, and the latter knew this was the moment to have a coming-out party. To show Germany that the SS had arrived, Himmler ordered new uniforms in 1932. Gone were the khaki-brown military shirts like the SA wore, Now, all would be black, like that of a German army officer. Thus, would the SA look more like the thugs they were, in comparison. The uniforms were made by Hugo Boss. In fact, his business was saved by the SS contracts. As for the Waffen-SS's uniform, when the time came, they would look no different than the Wehrmacht-filled gray. Of course, they would have the runes or double. SS By the time Hitler came to power in January of 1933 the SS had 52,000 men. Himmler was forced to halt taking on any more men. But as the now chancellor of Germany Hitler insisted on a separate force to guard the Reich Chancellery. Hence the SS headquarters guards were set up with Sepp Dietrich in charge and would soon have 800 men. Dietrich, like Himmler before him, would strive mightily to keep his unit as independent as possible. Before too long, the unit would be promoted by Hitler himself to the Leibstandarte SS Adolf Hitler. And these Chancellery Guards, like the SS, like the SA before them, swore an oath of allegiance to Hitler personally. We swear to you, Adolf Hitler, loyalty. And bravery, we pledge to you and to the superiors appointed by you obedience until death, so help us God. The Leibstandata SS Adolf Hitler was the first of three militarized units that would eventually form the Waffen SS. The other two were the SS Verfungenstruppen, or SSVT, the troops at the Führer's disposal, and the SS. Tonkin Bande or SSVT. This last group would form the prison guards of the SS prisons and future concentration camps. The first such camp was at Dachau, which held communists, some liberal democrats who couldn't keep their mouths shut, trade unionists, socialists, and later, Jews. Yet Hitler was about to find out that climbing to power and holding on to it were two different things. Making promises, blaming certain groups for Germany's ills, was one thing. But now that he had become the state's master, and now sought to take on foreign powers, he needed the army more than ever. He didn't trust the professional soldiers, but needed the fear and respect they generated in order to fulfill his bloodless territorial grabs but flying in the face of all this was ernst rom and his powerful sa 3 million members strong rom knew that the sa had been crucial in hitler coming to power but what now was the national socialist revolution over for hitler now running the country the answer was yes but for rom it was a decided no why weren't his men paid better or given proper jobs? They certainly needed the cash as they normally came from the lower rungs of the socio economic ladder. Did it matter that the majority were unqualified for the well paying jobs they expected to get? Being a good national socialist was one thing, but that did not qualify one to be the vice president of a bank. And Rahm was not quiet about his or his men's lack of means. But he had the solution. Create your own job. Rahm said that he wanted the regular army merged with the SA, with him still at the head, of course. But the army would never go along with being directly associated with these ruffians, and Hitler needed the army happy. No, Rahm had to go, and somehow the power or the threat of the SA had to be broken. Eventually labeled the Night of the Long Knives, in late June, early July of 1934, after Reinhard Heydrich of the SS Security Service prepared legal charges, Dietrich's Leibstandarte moved out to arrest and kill specific men of the SA. When Rahm himself was arrested, Hitler was there personally. The proscribed men were eliminated but more than that, Hitler chose this period of extra-legal killings to get back at those he had deemed his enemies. Like Gregor Strasse, leader of the left-leaning part of the Nazi Party, and several conservatives who were anti-Nazi politicians in the Reichstag. There was also personal grudges to be settled, like former Chancellor Kurt von Schleicher and the man who put down Hitler's Beer Hall putsched, Gustav von Kahr. By the time the bullet stopped, the SA was left weakened and removed forever as a threat to Hitler. Further, the army congratulated the Fuhrer on his forthrightness of action, and the SS for getting their hands dirty. Himmler's SS was now a completely independent body, and Dietrich was promoted to watch over the concentration camps, but kept control of the chancellery guard units. A new clique had risen directly under Hitler and completely loyal to him. Himmler now took his SS to the growth phase of its history, but growth requires organization, rules, discipline, and military professionalism and smart enough to know that he did not know how to do this, Himmler tapped retired Army Lieutenant General Paul Hauser, a professional soldier from a Prussian military family. In time, Hauser's ambivalence about Himmler's modern-day Order of the Teutonic Knights, with its mysticism and based on the blood of its soldiers, would cause friction. But for now, the general and his staff had what Himmler needed, experience and knowledge. So, as Hitler tolerated Himmler's love of the occult, Himmler tolerated Hauser's non-belief in such things. In 1935, military conscription was brought back to Germany against the Versailles Treaty, but Hitler was done with that and guessed that his rival prime ministers would not raise a finger to stop him. And he was right. The regular army had conscripts, but the SS had volunteers, if they were accepted. First, one's Aryan pedigree had to be verified, and a certain level of physical fitness was required. As for the former, Himmler brought on an expert who had a five-point scale. The best one could score was purely Nordic. The worst was of extra-European blood mixtures. Lastly, Himmler was not so concerned with educational qualifications as one's blood would tell in regards to ability. Fortunately for the SS, at first, many of the volunteers, at least the officers, had a level of education. Still, this eye for taking in talent, regardless of book learning or scruples, would allow certain monsters in which did not mean that they were not loyal, hard-working, dedicated, and when need be, ruthless. But time would show that having men under arms who may not understand the workings of those weapons was not the road to an invincible army. Into the cadet schools these young men went, where Himmler had Nazi ideology pounded into them, for they were to be political Soldiers. And just so that they would get the message right from the start, the servants of the school were the prisoners from the Dachau concentration camp. And whether it was intentional or not, and it probably was, the men of the SS were felt to be superior even to the Wehrmacht, which led to low level street fights between the two. But the time would come when the two groups could pit themselves against foreigners thus proving the argument once and for all. And that moment seemed to be fast approaching. In 1935, Hitler publicly declared that Germany would no longer conform to the Versailles Treaty. This was done with flair as he reintroduced conscription and told the army he wanted 36 divisions. And to lead this new force, the Reichswehr would be replaced with the Wehrmacht i.e. armed forces. As tension rose between the professional army and the growing SS, events played into Hitler's hands, giving him more direct control over the Wehrmacht, which would allow him, in time, to give Himmler what he wanted, an armed SS, allowed to expand into a divisional formation. In 1938, Widowed War Minister Werner von Blomberg married a young lady of ill repute. Thus, he was forced out of his position. His replacement should have been Army Commander-in-Chief General von Fritsch, but the SS made it look like he was a homosexual, which he wasn't, but he was out too. But instead of picking someone else, Hitler chose himself to be the new Commander-in-Chief of the Wehrmacht. Opposing generals were fired or transferred. And now that Hitler's war with his generals was out in the open, so to speak, he saw the value of Himmler's request to enlarge the SS and for it to receive military training. But as a sop to the wounded pride of the army, Hitler designated it so that the General SS would remain a political body. Only the Leibstandarte, the SS Junderschulen, officer training schools, and ex-SS Tottenkopf and their reserves were to be molded by the army and heavily armed. In fact, it would be the SS Leibstandarte that would lead the German forces across the river Rhine into the demilitarized zone on March 7, 1936, further shattering Versailles. The quality of their military training was irrelevant, as France and Britain did nothing. And it was the Liebstandarte SS Adolf Hitler that would participate with German forces, making their way into Austria on March 12, 1938, thus incorporating that country. With access to a new pool of men, Himmler wasted no time in expanding the SS even further. Then came the future allies' low point, the Munich Agreement. As Hitler blustered and Mussolini supported him, London and Paris gave in, sacrificing others to save themselves. Hence, units of the SSVT, now motorized, passed through the very mountain passes that were to protect the smaller Czech state. Next, Hitler set his sights on Poland, but knew it would not be a pushover, as his request for the return of territory lost at Versailles was coldly dismissed. War was coming, but Hitler was to be pleasantly surprised as he found that the very coming war eased tension between the army and the SS. For the army desperately wanted all the help it could get, and its first true test Since the Great War, the SSVT was made a fully motorized infantry division, as were three infantry regiments and their signal battalion. Further, the motorcycle battalion was given anti-tank and anti-air units. Right before Poland was invaded, it would be the SS, as a part of Operation Himmler, that would fake Polish attacks on German territory and facilities thereby giving Hitler the excuse to invade for defensive purposes. On the evening of August 31, 1939, the Liebstandarte and SSVT units had 18,000 men. The Totenkopf had some 22,000 men, and these numbers were growing. But the coming war with Poland wasn't just Hitler's next land grab. It wasn't just about closing the Polish Corridor, which separated East Prussia from Germany proper. It was racial. It was a war on the Slavs, who were deemed subhuman by Hitler, at least as far back as Mein Kampf. No, Poland wasn't to be incorporated into the Third Reich like Austria and Czechoslovakia. It was to disappear. It was to be wiped out. The Slavic population was to have its head removed in the form of its elites. The rest were to be made slaves, and this was to be carried out by the SS. The Leimstandata and SSVT were to fight alongside the army, making their own blood sacrifice to gain the respect of the army and the people, while the Totenkopf units would come in afterwards, and take care of security. But this was Nazi Germany, after all. Hence, Heydrich's secret security service and the Gestapo comprised a list of 61,000 Polish elites that were to be done away with. And, of course, the Jews of Poland. There was no need of a specific list for them. They were all to be wiped from the face of the earth.